0: From Filthy Lux Studios in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, I'm Jim Warner, and you are listening to Citizen Light. In today's episode, we share excerpts from the panel entitled Creating Space for Marginalized Voices, presented at the 2017 AWP Conference. The organizers of Canada's inaugural Festival of Literary Diversity, in discussion with publishing professionals, talk about how to promote and support a diverse lineup of authors, uncovering how targeted initiatives and intentional approaches can effectively address the diversity gaps in the publishing industry. Fold celebrates diversity in literature by promoting Authors and Stories in Brampton, Ontario, one of Canada's most culturally rich cities. From Washington, D.C., here is FOLD founder, J.L. Richardson.
1: My name is J.L. Richardson. I am an author and the artistic director of the Festival of Literary Diversity, which is Canada's first festival for diverse authors and storytellers. I'm going to have the privilege of talking a little bit about the festival, and then I'm going to introduce my panelists, and they're going to talk about some of the other great organizations and endeavors that are going on in Canada. I have dual citizenship, so I think some of the things that we're doing here definitely translate directly into the work that many of you are doing, um, and so I hope you find it useful. Um, The Festival of Literary Diversity started in 2016. That was the first festival, it was last May, and it featured uh, a festival that started with underrepresented voices. So what we saw in Canada were, uh, we saw the we need diverse books movement, and we knew that something needed to happen in Canada as well. Uh, I was an author, I came out with a book, and uh, it was very difficult to get into festivals. It was very difficult to get visibility. And when we go to literary festivals, I love literary festivals. I would go, and the workshop presenters and the panelists were almost always uh, white and cis, and a whole bunch of things that rec- represented that mainstream voice. And so we wanted to create a festival and a space that would start with diverse voices and underrepresented storytellers and built around them, as opposed to including their voices as an afterthought. And so that's where the festival came out of. After we delivered the festival, we had over uh, 30 authors and 30 uh, different sessions. We wanted to think about where we would go next, and that's where the idea behind this panel came from. And we gathered together some really interesting and exciting voices to show you what it looks like to be at the Festival of Literary Diversity, but also to give you some insight Uh, in the work that you're doing. I know I've talked to a few of you out there who are event planners and magazine editors, and so I think you'll find a real wonderful range of ideas from this group. And so um, I'm gonna do a little bit of their background, and then they're going to explain to you how they got into those jobs. And we're gonna go from a sort of macro concept, the ideas that led to certain projects, and then to the micro, where this is exactly what we did to launch this product. Project and this is exactly what we do on a day-to-day basis to elevate the voices of those who are marginalized and to create diverse lineups. On my uh, far right, we have Naïla King, and she joins us. She's with Room Magazine, so she'll talk to you a little bit about Room Magazine, which is a, a, a fantastic magazine in Canada. Next to her, another uh, magazine editor, which is Colleen uh, Fraser from Platitude Magazine. Um, on my left, we have Benuzan, who runs a uh, poetry reading series in Toronto called Scholarship Poetry Reading Series, and uh, Leonika Valsias, who uh, started the Diverse CamLit hashtag, Diverse Camelot website, and she's also on the chair for the Festival of Literary Diversity. So we'll start on this end with Naïla. If you could tell us a little bit about why you got involved with Room Magazine and what Room Magazine does, would be great.
2: So I started at Room in 2011, Um, at the time I was almost done my degree at UBC, back when I was living in Vancouver. Uh, Room really appealed to me because they publish women writers and uh, are inclusive of the trans community and the non-binary community. It was really important to me to be in the Camlet scene in Vancouver, but also amongst women. That was a really um, important value for me. So that's kind of where I joined. And they've been around
1: since 1975. And when we say can-lit, that's our uh, short form for Canadian literature and the Canadian literature uh, culture and scene. Yeah. Okay.
3: yeah, so Planetium was founded uh, in 2012, uh, and our mandate is to promote the growth and development of LGBTQ literature uh, through publishing both emerging and established writers and connecting them in the community, providing resources for them to develop their craft. Um, I had the experience that I think a lot of people have had, which is kind of collecting uh, examples of representations of myself in media. Uh, a lot of people probably have, like don't see a lot of themselves, and, and uh, it's hard to imagine a future for yourself if you, um, you can't see examples of, of what your future could look like. Uh, so. I had the privilege of working um, in publishing
4: for several years and I wouldn't be where I am without all the privilege that let me get the education
3: and the, you know, unpaid work experience that are often um, requisites to to have a career like this, and so I feel like it's a responsibility to to make space for voices that, that don't get a lot of space in the publishing industry.
4: So my name is Balmizan, and thank you for having me on the panel. It's, it's very exciting. Um, I'm uh, originally from Iran, so I landed in Canada in 2010, and started going to events. I'm a poet, by the way. Yeah. So I um, um, started going to poetry events, and um, gradually I, I discovered something, that events, are segregated along lines of ethnicity, age, sexual orientation, poetic styles, voices, and visions, and many, many other factors. I would go to many different events because I am an eternal outsider, and I don't mind. You know, wherever I go, I am a minority. So uh, I went everywhere, and I discovered very, very strong, powerful voices in the poetry community. And when I talked to other groups. I discovered they didn't know, they know nothing about them. So I, in 2012, I started the Shade Share. in Persian, it means Poetry Night, um, which is a monthly uh, poetry and open mic series. And uh, it, I call it a brave space that bridges the gap between different poetry communities of um, ethnicities, nationalities, religions, sexual orientations, and disabilities, and poetic sites, voices, and visions. Um, so the reason I called it share this is a personal expression, um, was because I wanted to emphasize the contribution of newcomers, immigrants, to the culture, especially immigrants and newcomers from non-European or non English-speaking backgrounds. By January 2017, uh, at at January 2017, we had a 47th event. We have featured 91 artists without repeating a single one. And um, hundreds have been on our open mic. A lot of um, collaborations and, you know, projects among people from different communities have started. Nowadays, uh, event organizers um, and uh, other people who are looking for different speakers actually either approach me or come to the event and pick people from among features and open micers. So I'm really excited to be facilitating this, this dialogue that seems to be um, going over like my, my limited life. Um, so I came to publishing in
2: 2011. I didn't mean to uh, be an advocate for diversity or inclusion. I just wanted to work in a field that I liked. I liked books, so I thought that could be a good fit. Um, I did a uh, publishing program, a postgraduate certificate, and I remember distinctly the first day of class, uh, walking into the hallway. Most of my fellow students were in the hallway waiting for the person who had the key to open the door. And because we were all congregated in a small space, it was very easy to see what the rest of publishing looked like. It was the majority white women, maybe 60 uh, students. And of those 60 students, there were maybe a handful of people of color, I'd say six or seven, and maybe four or five men. And that made me ask why. And I think all of my work since that point has been the continuation of those questions. Why is the publishing industry going this way? Why are people excluded? Where are those people who are excluded going instead? Because I refuse to believe that they aren't reading, writing, creating, and sharing their work. So if they're not doing it in this space, what space is left for them? How can we bridge those gaps and share those uh, stories to make sure that they have access to the privilege of the industry, to the marketing power, to the distribution power, to the money,
0: um,
2: but also so that the industry has access to the richness and the vibrance of these people's stories, which I think is important as well. So that's kind of the core of my
1: So the next question is really about that micro level, that planning and execution level. And so um, I'm gonna invite each of the panelists to share what they do to make sure their lineups, their, their selections represent as diverse a list as possible. And if you can be really practical about how your submissions work, what you do with those submissions, those of you who are planning events, how you find them, and you can even include some of the challenges with that, because I think that's the real thing: is that we all want to do it, but how do you do it, and what do you do when you've made mistakes? Um, so maybe we'll start with um, new Do you want to get us kicked off? Um, just let us know what do you do. How do you how do you get your meeting
4: series going? How do you find? Your Wow, that's a long story. Okay, so um, what do I do? What I don't do, actually, I do a lot. So first I go to many events, um, many poetry events, uh, I attend, I connect with poets, um, um, and I also connect with them on social media, and I rarely ever feature a poet that I haven't heard, and I haven't met face to face, and haven't felt their presence. And so um, I connect with people for a long time and I observe their um, like, like, um, attitude at the events and and also their attitude online. In, in choice of the future towards what I do, I try to pick people um, who even do not know one another. So that that experience would, would expand the network and they also learn something new. And that's why you have a lot of collaborations to start, a lot of new ventures to start. So um, and so what what we do is that we have an admission fee, a small admission fee of five dollars, everyone pays and gets in. And after that fee we pay the rent, and also the rest is divided between features. So I ask the features to bring as many people as possible because their payment depends on the turnout. Other factors that I also consider, like this as much as possible. We had disabled same um, features as well. And um, what is very important for me is uh, the poet's commitment to community. We feature a lot of organizers, a lot of workshop leaders, a lot of people who provide a space for other poets in their own community. Because this is a job that needs to be acknowledged. Poetry is community building, and if a poet doesn't care about a community, they don't need a featured spot.
1: I want to go over to this side and talk a little bit about magazine, okay. especially Manila and choosing the *Women of Color* issue. What was different, or what's different about the way you put your calls out, and how do you make those decisions once the submissions come in? I probably would say it's a little bit thematic.
2: Um, it's the call, and then kind of, in my situation, we were co-editing. We, Christina and I kind of wanted to unpack our own biases um, in that we like to read a particular type of story, um, respectively, and in order to make sure we were pushing the barriers of the women of color issue in publishing you know, not publishing nine stories about identity, we kind of had to have these discussions about impacting, you know, what are we interested in, what do we like, what do we don't like, what are the reasons for that, and
1: can we kind of move forward? Mm-hmm. So that's one strategy. So um, you guys, before you even put the call out, you guys thought about what are you norm- what's the thing that comes to your mind and how can you go beyond that? Yes.
2: Yeah. Uh, we were trying to transcend that place because I'm open to obviously diverse stories written by diverse people, but there's certain things I like to read. For example, I was joking in another panel about how I love plots where things start out bad and they only get worse. That is like my favorite all-time story. Just like the more terrible, the better. But that may, you know, there might be a good story that has a different arc where things end happily or they end okay, um, and I had to kind of transcend Past that So we were really looking to kind of say, just because this is a woman of colour issue doesn't mean we're not focused on certain things. We have to kind of push forward in that regard. Um, getting to the wider context of a women of colour issue, it's not something that happened overnight. Um, it was a discussion because Room Magazine is a collective. And over time, people leave, they join, they leave, they join, they leave, they join. Um, and at that time, there weren't a lot of women of color in the collective, um, maybe one or two of us. And I was really pushing to have this issue. And I remember one of the criticisms was that we didn't need a special issue, that women, there's nothing stopping women of color from submitting. They should just go to submit. And I remember being really frustrated by that. Because at the time, given the masthead, even though these were my colleagues and peers, if I wasn't part of the collective, I would have never submitted in my life to them. So, thus, the birth of the women of color issue. We didn't want women of color to feel as though they had to write about identity. But, we didn't want women of color to be discouraged against writing about identity. We really wanted women of color to have a space to talk about whatever they wanted to talk about. And we were really purposeful and reflective in this call. This call was rewritten six or seven times because we wanted to get it right. And, you know, it's been a year since it's come out and there were a few things I would have done differently. I really wish we had been more explicit in inviting women of color living with disability um, because it was the same thing that was going on before. Um, we weren't actively just, you know, excluding this community, but we weren't explicitly saying, hey, we're interested in these stories, and that's something that, you know, I have some, a lot of regret really about, but I think, um, the call was really key in getting the audiences that we wanted to submit. So, I think we're working towards other single, special issues, but I think, I'm hoping that these special issues serve as a jumping off point to further continue the
1: advocacy of those groups. It was interesting, I was at a panel this morning with Grub, Grub Writers, Grub Street Writers, um, and they said when they put out a call they always put a special note in there about looking for diverse voices, and when they do that, oddly enough, it never decreases the number of white writers who submit, but it always increases the number of diverse writers who submit. So for those of you who are looking for submissions, it's just something to keep in mind. Um, You're not necessarily going to discourage those voices that have always been coming, but the marginalized voices may find a a special sense of invitation and belonging that wasn't there before. Um, Kathleen, tell us a little bit about Plenitude? When you get your submissions, how do you make your decisions? Sure, so
3: a lot of it, I would say, is guided by a mandate, which uh, we kind of always recognize that in the mainstream there's specific queer narratives that you'll see a lot of, like you see a lot of coming out narratives, you see a lot of, like, struggling with homophobia, and um, education narratives, activism narratives, and we kind of wanted to give space where people could move beyond that and tell a more nuanced story about being queer. So, um, kind of like you were saying, like, you can't always separate, politics from your existence, and you, you have to give space to, to also include that in your writing, but we, we did want to let writers um, develop their craft and, and tell more interesting and more nuanced stories about, about being queer. Um, I would say also in 2016, we've done a lot more like hard looking at ourselves and <clears throat> the kind of people that, that we're publishing. This was partly motivated because in 2015, uh, we redesigned our website. We're an online-only publication. Um, and we started including, including authors' photos uh, next to, to every piece we published, and it became really clear how right our site was. Um, and uh, so the, we started taking some steps to, to deal with this. The first thing that we did was we included a voluntary demographic survey in our submissions process. So we just wanted to find out, like, is this happening at the submissions level? Is this happening at the level where people are selecting the pieces that we're publishing? And we weren't really that surprised to find that it's happening also at the submissions level. Like, people are seeing our site. They're not finding it a welcoming place to send their work. They don't want to be, like, judged by the editorial board that is creating this site. Um, so we started uh, by adding some new language to our general call for submissions, uh, we more specifically interested in hearing from writers of color, um, but also writers with disabilities and uh, youth and elders. Um, and other voices that were maybe not serving as well as we could be right now. We also started adding specific calls for submissions that were only open to writers of color. Um, we started reaching out to specific writers that we were interested in seeing on the site. An important step also was that we raised our honoraria. Um, I think paying writers is a huge thing. You're um, here. Let's just give that a pause for a moment. Say that again, <laughs> <laughs> Paying writers is crucial. <laughs> so, I mean, it's still a modest fee, but we would, to keep pushing that up Um, but it it was raised to us by some people that uh, there were still a lot of submissions that were only being read by white editors and not everyone feels comfortable having their work elevated that way not every writer feels that a a white editor is the most appropriate reader for their work so a big part of it is hiring and right now I think we're really only interested in hiring uh, editors of color as we expand our editorial board we're looking for ways um, to have Pieces evaluated by more than one person to have more than one kind of taste reflected on the, on the website. Um, and so in 2016, we moved to having two poetry editors, and I've been really happy uh, with the diversity of voices we're seeing there, not just in terms of who we're publishing, but in terms of the kind of work that they do, the, the different styles of poetry that are interesting to the two different editors. Um, yeah, it's, it's definitely a work in progress, and I think we have to like not let ourselves be complacent about it because we feel that we're doing something good and progressive like political barriers. writers. we have to remember we're
1: letting other communities down so. we talk about it a lot at the fold and Lenica uh, spends a lot of time with me um, where we talk about the idea that true inclusion is an ongoing process, that it's likely to never really arrive at a place where it's fully inclusive, where every person who has a need walks in and has everything they need without asking for it. So it's very difficult, which means that it's a it's a forward motion. It's always about what can we do now, what can we add, how can we expand? So, I mean, can you tell us a little bit about how you do your work, whether it's with the or divers can live? frame uh, your choices about who you highlight and talk about?
2: Um, for sure, so I'll admit that a lot of my work comes out of my own questions and curiosities and trying to expand uh, my own reading life and what I know. I started uh, initially was like, a, like a, a book reading challenge for myself, like okay, I'm going to try to read more people of color because I was in this Canadian publishing program trying to catch up with the Canadian canon and I was just not into it, and I was like, this can't be the industry I'm going to work in, so there must be something for me out there. That expanded to recognizing that I need to be reading more uh, works by queer authors, and then, the, and then from there, looking at, well, maybe I should be reading more books by trans authors. And so it was a very gradual work for me. Um, in my work, with the fold, I feel like the question I'm always asking is, who are we missing? Who will feel left out? Like, what are the obstacles to the thing that the person wants to do? I don't think, like you said, I don't think there'll ever be a space that's fully, perfectly inclusive, but at the very least, it should be safe where a person can say, hey, you've missed me, and as an organization, as an individual, as a group, as a community, we can react and say, I'm so sorry, how can I fix it? I think that attitude of trying to do the right thing and learn from mistakes and acknowledging that there were mistakes is really important. Um, a lot of my day job is in publishing and I consider that part of my advocacy work, just being in that room and saying, okay, I'm the only person of color here. I'm gonna have to speak up for everyone and make that my job, right? So, no, I'm not a Native woman, but if I see representation that I think may be harmful, I can at least say, I don't know everything about this topic, but I think this is a problem, let's put a pin in that and think about it further. So, a lot of it is taking the time to educate myself and listen. And I really like what like banu had to say about uh, taking the time to meet people, and connect with them because that's so important, right? I don't think you can advocate for people you don't know or you don't love on some level, right? Um, so I, when I talk about my work, I'm like, it's diversity, I'm looking for equity and inclusion for people who are typically left out. For me, that often means black women. But for that to expand, I need to meet more people outside of my own experience. So that when they're not in the room, it's just me. I can know and love and think about their needs as
0: well. We'll have more from this AWP panel presentation after the break. Today's episode of Citizen Lit is brought to you by Midwestern Gothic. Submissions are now open for Midwestern Gothic summer 2017 issue. Until March 31st, send your fiction, poetry, and creative nonfiction. Midwestern Gothic is looking for pieces that help paint a portrait of the Midwestern United States. Visit midwestgothic.com slash submit to send them your work. We now return you to this AWP panel. Uh,
1: The Fool is the Festival of Literary Diversity. It takes place in Brampton, uh, which is just outside of Toronto. Technically, if you've flown into Toronto's airport, you actually landed in Brampton and then just left Brampton to go to Toronto. Um, but that's where the festival takes place and one of the challenges we have when we get together as a team I really liked how everyone talked about identifying where you come from and the space that you come from um, but what really became a challenge at the planning level is like what does that actually practically look like and so I want to know is, is it a numbers game and how do you deal with the numbers you know when you're thinking about trans writers and you're thinking about women of color you know does it come down to we want to make sure we have more than one, so somebody's not a token, and how to sufficiently represent those people who are missing.
2: I think for Room, it's always been reactive. Um, when I was doing more editing, it was always someone approaching me and saying, I'm missing, I don't feel included, etc." Um, I'm hoping in the future we're able to be proactive and know where, uh, where we're missing groups We've created a uh, diversity committee, Um, so I'm hoping that they're they're able to address that work. But in terms of on an individual basis, because we have retaining editorship, I think one of the challenges for some editors, it's ever present in their mind. So I think in our scenario, we're having more of these discussions. I don't know if there's a number or a quota. Um, I know we try to strive for our contest judges for it to mainly be Women of color, um, and to be LGBT inclusive. Um, so yeah, I think it's a combination of finding diverse writers and also looking for even more diversity within certain intersections.
1: What about Kathleen, what about you? Do you you talked a bit about the the new position being editors of color? Mm-hmm. When you have your um, submissions now, do you specifically set out to say you know we need to make sure that online there is at least one story by a person of color. Do you have those sort of quotas in mind?
3: Um, I think we're sort of starting to think about it in those terms, and mm-hmm. like I was saying, we're just starting to, to audit not just our submissions, but also who we're publishing, so we're starting to get a sense of the numbers that we already have. Mm-hmm. Um, most of what we publish does come uh, as an unsolicited submission, so a big part of it is also just like getting the
1: submissions and our challenge that we're focusing right now on, I would say. Awesome. So, the last question I want to ask the panel is when we submitted to AWP, we actually submitted two uh, panels. One was about uh, disability and inclusion, which was one of the areas that perhaps we'll definitely got overlooked or underrepresented in our first year of implementation for a variety of reasons, some good, some not. We don't have anyone with visible disabilities. Um, some of us are on the spectrum of invisible disabilities, but we really want to make sure that that conversation is not overlooked here in this moment. And so I want to give each of the panelists an opportunity to speak about how the work they're doing um, will specifically look at ways of improving perhaps one of the most marginalized groups in our world, right? We live in a very ableist, culture and world and in every marginalized community, there are people in those communities who are disabled, who are overlooked and underrepresented many times over. So what uh, that you're doing personally or as part of your organization will help make improvements to make uh, the writing community more accessible to those with disabilities. And we will start with
4: the new. Thank you. Uh, yes, as, a, as an event organizer, as uh, I said before, we don't receive grants. Mm-hmm. It's a big challenge to find spaces that are fully accessible. Mm-hmm. Um, they're usually very expensive. Mm-hmm. And for our budget, um, we started at a small gallery that was basically accessible. The washroom was a small, pro- couldn't probably have people with wheelchairs. But otherwise, it was okay. And from the very first year, actually, even in that small space, we had people with disability who came just to listen or to participate. Um, and, but then we moved to another space that was um, accessible with a portable ramp, uh, but the washrooms were not accessible. So, but we had a number of people who even came and read um, at our event. So we put the portable around, and um, people at, at the event, even the, the audience or the team members, um, made sure if they needed to use the washroom to kind of help them or other things. And um, but in this new space that we have moved into and been there for two months, it's fully accessible. So uh, one of the things that we were looking for, but well, it was hard to find. Like I was like kind of disappointed almost at the point of disappointment. Because without a small budget, I wasn't hoping to... A lot of those spaces that we approached, they were not even ready to talk to us. So that's the, one of the things I want to tell my um, my friends and writers and, uh, who suffer from disabilities that we are not ignoring them. But there are real issues as organizers I that we have. That's one of the
1: things we realized, too, is there's a real uh, and it's important when you're working with people in the, in the community to be real about it. You know, there were economic issues being more accessible, which doesn't mean we don't do it. just means you have to be really thoughtful about how you do it. You know, if you make your stage accessible with a ramp, which means that you're expecting people with disabilities to be speakers, which is important. Um, it means that you have fewer seats in the audience. It means that you can physically sell fewer tickets. So there's real economic things that don't mean we don't make things accessible, but it means we constantly have to be thinking about how to become more accessible. We can never just be like, ah, it's okay, nobody's gonna notice, or they won't have to go to the bathroom while they're at the event. It really has to stay in the forefront of your mind as you're considering how to make improvements. And you know, one of the things we're looking at with, them. Um, But the deaf community is, you know, do you bring in ASL interpreters to every event? It's expensive. Will people actually utilize it? right? So there's lots of things to think about and to be continuously thinking about. What about from the magazines, side? what do you guys, um, how do you guys reach out or what are you doing to reach out to those
4: communities?
3: Um, I guess I would acknowledge that this is an area that we are looking to improve in. Uh, For us, accessibility is kind of, like, the bare minimum that we are aiming to meet. Uh, Redesigning our website in 2015 was a great opportunity for us to meet accessibility standards, uh, to make sure that the work we publish is readable by people who use screen readers or who have visual impairments. Um, And we've also started to sponsor events, uh, and we will only sponsor events that are held in accessible spaces, and that are accessible also to people with, uh, not like to lower income people, um, to people of various ages. Uh, Sober spaces are important. Uh, but just in terms of who we are publishing, we're still falling down here, our numbers are really low, so that is an area that, we're, that we need to, to reach out to more, for sure. Uh,
2: yeah, so I think this is an area that I actually I don't know much about, and that I'm trying to teach myself more, but this is an area where like, listening is important. Um, this, Writers with disabilities and organizers with disabilities are doing their own work and they're creating their own events and have fantastic things to offer if we just listen. So I think that's what I'm trying to do more, listen more and pass the mic as much as possible, um, share what I find. There are several uh, disabled activists both here in the US and in Canada that I follow through quite closely. Um, and try to this is what they have to say and listen to the resources that they use use because they are the experts in their lives and um, I think sometimes when we run into these questions of you know where for example it, it's difficult for us to find spaces that are accessible. Perhaps we can ask people with disabilities, you know, what spaces do you use? What have you found to be most efficient for your needs? Because we're struggling. And because this is something they live with, they know what spaces work for them. They know what organizations tend to be good. They know what funding sources tend to help. So that may be something that we as people who want to be allies
1: can try to do more of. Um, I went to an event earlier this weekend and they said, you know, we need to be more than allies, we need to become accomplices. And I think really thinking about ways that you can be outspoken, even at AWP I've seen a couple of things that just aren't okay, and yet I'm a terrible activist in that regard, I'm just like, oh, somebody else is going to say something. <laughs> you know? Um, but, but we need to be put ourselves in more vulnerable positions because we know that our, our peers are putting themselves in those positions or in those positions every day. Um, would you want to um I just wanted to add that there's a lot of
2: conversation about accessible spaces but I was in a very very good panel on disability today and I think we also need to think about accommodations for um, folks who are living with a disability maybe they need more longer timelines to do their work um, I also found out that submittable doesn't isn't accessible for screen readers so maybe um, we find a different process for that um, I'd love for Room, for example, to do a full audio version um, of the magazine for the visually um, impaired. And just kind of thinking outside of the accessible space, like how do we accommodate writers living with a disability? Is it they get three months ahead of time before the calls open? Like we really need to have an adjacent conversation, not just about spaces, but how do we actively Include and accommodate within our pages or within that audio space. Um, I've been really challenging the collective to think about how we include people in events. Like I've wanted, I personally wanted to stream the Women of Color launch, um, but there were obviously cost issues involved in that. Um, but it's something I'd like to see in the future. So some people are living with chronic pain, so they can't really make those trips out to. These events, but I bet that they could probably watch on their computer and still feel included. And I think there's a lot of potential with the digital realm that will help us do that.
0: Fold's second installment includes sessions over three days in historic downtown Brampton from May 4th through the 7th, 2017. Visit thefoldcanada.org for more information. Join the conversation with Citizen Lit. Like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and SoundCloud at Litcast. Like what you hear on the episode? Subscribe, rate, and review us on Stitcher and iTunes. Have a scene to report on? Want a recorded audio review? Email us at CitizenLitCast at gmail.com. Thanks to J.L. Richardson, The Fold, and AWP. Additional music for today's episode was provided by Kai Engel. Our theme music comes from the late, great Bedford. More information on the program is available at citizenlitcast.com. Aubrey Cox is our executive producer. Jen C. Williams is our graphic designer. I'm your host, Jim Warner, and you've been listening to Citizen Lit.